Jesus, thank you uh, so much for this community and for the way you are transforming us and the way that you are engaging us. And uh, I ask today, uh, Jesus, that you would um, give us a peace of mind, that you would give us uh, a sensitive heart, that you would give us compassion for one another. Um, Lord, I ask that you would transform the way we think and that you would center us on you, Jesus. But in all of that and all that I ask, I do want to acknowledge that though those are our desires, that does not mean that our minds and our hearts are in those places. We're wrestling with our own brokenness, with the cycling thoughts, with our anxieties, with all those kinds of things, with even just not even understanding who you are, God. Um, So I ask that you would honor our presence here and that you would miraculously transform our minds and our hearts. And even you would give us... um, the ability to understand in places we just don't understand. And I ask that in your holy name. Amen. So, um, I would say, at least for me, and maybe for you, I guess as your pastor I should say for you, that there is a little bit of probably a problem with all of us, and that is that the last, I don't know, 11 months have been crazy. Right? That you have been trying to figure out your life. I mean, I know within our community, people have passed away. We've lost parents. Um, there's been sickness. All of us are trying to make a living. Uh, we've gotten married. We've done a lot of different things. And, and sometimes when we get moving in this culture, we begin to just kind of numb out and we're kind of just focused, right? And we're going, we're going, and we're going. And we're going, and we're going, and we're going. And one of the things that the village does and has done for a long time, because our value is, one of our values is the disciplines, is to offer you kind of an opportunity and a challenge to take December, which tends to be a crazy time, but what really should be a quieter time and a time where you look at the birth of Jesus, to take it and to, to slow down. And so we call it fallow month, right? And no, it is not an excuse for the pastors to tell you they're not going to meet with you um, and that they're not going to go to any meetings, right? That's not what this is about, though I do enjoy that part of it. Um, what it is is to, to get us to slow down, and it comes from the idea, it's a farming idea. Um, and in Scripture and in the Old Testament, the Israelites, who are the people of God, are called to fallow times. So they are to plant their fields for six years, and on the seventh year, they're not supposed to do anything in that field. And part of the reason for that is, is that if you let the field sit, then it doesn't pull, it kind of replenishes its, its nutrients, and it can actually be a productive land, right? And so that idea we're kind of encouraging in our community is saying, hey, in December, you've been busy for 11 months. There's been a lot of stressors. Let's try to create some space in your life to be fallow to just rest, to take a deep breath. We're, we're asking you to do that. You can flip the slide there for me, Ron. Um, and then the next one. But when we talk about being fallow, it, we're not just actually talking about rest. Now, that, that is one of the ideas that we talk a lot about, is you resting, taking a deep breath. But the prophet Hosea, who is in the Old Testament and really is one of the mouthpieces for God 
to his people. And Hosea 10, 12 says this. Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Now, some translations, if you're following along in in your NIV, will say unplowed ground, which is the same idea as fallow ground. So sometimes the idea also here is that when you leave ground fallow, it gets hard and things overgrow on it. And so what's happening here in the request and the voice of Jesus or voice of God to his people is that you need to dig up this hard ground. So part of the challenge of the village to you is to take some rest. But the purpose of that rest is actually to dig up the places that have gotten hardened over the last 11 months, where you're not quite aware of all of the different things that you, and inter- things where you've kind of let things grow into your life that you don't know about right? That you are not really aware of how you've bought into maybe some of the cultural messages and the different things that are going on around you that are damaging to you and distracting from your relationship with God and are not in a place where you're preparing yourself to be showered with the righteousness of God. And they don't line up with the idea of unfailing love and righteousness as a practice in your life already. So that's, that's our encouragement and that's kind of where we're going to head. And so I want to kind of help you um, today to sort of figure out how that might work and how that would look. Um, but to do that, I want to go to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at a guy named Paul. That's okay, you can switch the slides. You can just anticipate my sermon, Rod, that's fine. Um, we're going to look at a guy named Paul who is, I guess you could call the super apostle. He became an apostle, a follower of Jesus, um, kind of in a sideways way. And he is like, his whole identity is missionary. He he just kind of oozes that out of himself. He can't help himself but be a missionary once he started following Jesus. And so we're going to pick up his story. He's already been on one journey, and this is his second missionary journey. And he's gotten chased out of a couple places, and he's really actually gone on vacation to Athens, right? This is supposed to be a vacation spot. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. I suspect that Silas and Timothy are like, hey, settle down. Don't mess things up until we get there. We've already gotten you out of two places. We don't want to do that again just yet. Just relax, okay? Now, before we get into what happens with Paul, I want to offer you something that if you don't, if you tune me out from here on, I want you to hear this that when you and I often go to the Bible, um, as we wrestle with our depression, when we wrestle with anxiety, when we wrestle with decisions, like where am I supposed to go to church? Where am I supposed to go to school? Who am I supposed to marry? How am I, should I have this roommate? Should I not have this roommate? You know, all the questions that we tend to ask. When we go to the Bible, the Bible does not tell us what we should do. It never tells us what we should do, except in very simple and basic things like thou shalt not murder got it, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, got it. Like, I'd be very simple, but it does not say thou shalt go to Yale, or thou shalt go to, you know, the U of A, or Pima, or some online school. It doesn't say any of those things. What it says is, this is the nature and character of the man or woman who can discern what you should do, right? That is always what the Bible says, 
It says, this is the kind of person who can figure it out. And so as we kind of look at Paul's story, I want to look at it that way. That as we are thinking about how do I un, you know, plow up my fallow heart to figure out what's going on with me, I want Paul to sort of be a guide for us. So we're going to pick up his story in verse 16 of chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them, this was Silas and Timothy, in Athens, so I'll stop there. Athens is no longer the power center, but it is the cultural center. Okay? It's the place where all the ideas are. It's the place where you're gonna, where all good philosophy is created. So he's in Athens in a place of thinkers, and he is greatly distressed to the, see the city full of idols. So the city's full of idols. Athens has about 50,000 idols in it. It's said that at this time, it is easier to find an idol than it is to find a man. Right? So if you could just imagine that in your head, wherever you go, there is an idol. Well, why is that? Because in every house, you have your specific God. And the city has its God. And this section of the city has its God. And your whole nation has its God. And, and every, there are a lot of gods. And so you have to have, you know, worship for them. And, top of that, there was a time when there was a great famine, and they're like, we're not sure what God has mad at us. So they just, the poet said, hey, let's send a bunch of sheep into the city, and whatever temple they die at, well, that must be the God that's mad at us. Only a bunch of them died where there were no temples. So they just erected altars to the unknown God. If you read the rest of the story, which we're not going to read, Paul comes along those, uh, it comes across those altars. So they had a lot. They were just ready to erect anything. But the more important thing is Paul's heart. Paul is distressed when he sees all these idols. Paul is distressed. This is the word we get for seizure. Right? So he is so emotionally distressed by these idols that it's almost like having an emotional seizure. Like he's just shaking as he looks around. The word in the Greek Old Testament is often, this word is used when God is upset because Israel has gone off and they're worshiping somebody else and not him. And so he's, he's frustrated, but it's not because he's jealous in the sense of, hey, I want to be the center of the world. It's more like this. You have a little kid who loves you. And, and all they ever do is talk about mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad, this, and then Uncle Joey shows up, right? And Uncle Joey is the best. And all they ever do is talk about Uncle Joey, Uncle Joey, Uncle Joey. But you know in your heart there's a reason that Uncle Joey doesn't come around a lot. One, Uncle Joey doesn't pay the bills. But two, Uncle Joey's a little shady and it's fine for him to come over to your house and for the kids to kind of like him, but that's it, right? But so you're kind of worried as a parent, like, well, I don't want my child to really like Uncle Joey that much. And I feel a little jealous, right? So Paul's distress here is not because, you know, he's, his heart is connected to God. And God's distress over these idols is not because they, you know, they're not worshiping him, so he's upset. No, he understands the destructiveness and the emptiness of worshiping those idols. And so does Paul. And so there's this, this emotional distress, right? Now, I want you to Pause here and think about, because if we're talking about fallow, and we're talking about digging up your heart, what we're digging up is idols. Only 
I don't know how many of you were in your carport the last few weeks carving your latest idol to put in your front yard, but that's not the kind of idol you have, right? Yours is in your home, and it's probably 64 inches, but that's another thing, right? Or maybe it's only 48 inches. I don't know what, what the size of your particular idol in your home is. No, like the idols of our world, often we tend to think of them as physical things. Like one of the things that's very obvious with, you know, the kind of the onslaught of the food channel is that food has become more and more of an idol in our, and the readiness of food and the way food's going to make us feel. And right, a lot of times we diagnose that as the idol. Right? Or some other thing you guys could pick in our culture that's obvious, like football, um, which has stadiums and it's gladiator wars. Like we, we have these kind of idols. But I actually think there are some more, uh, some different idols that kind of will help us understand how to dig up ours. Number one, one that's been in American culture since the beginning, I'll kind of shortly describe it like this. Like it's just family. Okay, but I don't mean just like family in the sense of it's loyalty to family, it's loyalty to country, it's loyalty to job, right? So in our culture, for a very long time, the thing that gives you meaning is external in the sense that your family and what your family thinks of you and how your family acts, like that tells you who you are. Within your own structure of husband and wife, like you're a wife and a wife does particular things and you're a good wife or a bad wife, you're a good husband or a bad husband, like it's an external value system, right? Or you're a good employee or you're you're loyal to the company or you're a patriot, like the U.S., man, go. Like when the Olympics come on, you're like really angry if you lose. Like you're like, that's the mob version of it. But these things define us. But after, so that's an idol that's still there, like for some of you, that, that keeps kind of coming up in your life, is what does mom think? What does dad think? What am I, how do I measure myself? But after World War II, two other idols really creeped into our world in a very different way. It's not that they didn't exist, but they're the ones that we all wrestle with maybe more readily. Number one is materialism, and number two is sexuality. And let me explain, because they became the end of things. Like, it used to be you worked so that you could provide for your family, right? Now you work so that you can have cool things in your house so that people can look at the cool things and tell you who you are. You can have status. Your materialism is its end. Money is the end. Like, having things is the end. It defines who you are, having pretty things. Like, and every single one of you is guilty of that because you're an American. You have that in you. Like it's part of what you're going to wrestle with. It's part of what you have to dig up and question. The other one like, is our sexuality because sexuality now becomes our identity instead of, you know, even in the, in the previous value system, the family value system where our sexuality is for holding families together and for making the community bigger, now it becomes an end in itself. Right? And you can see how this com- all of this, these things develop because think about like the washing machine. The washing machine comes into the world and what happens? People stop washing their clothes together. The TV comes into the world and people leave the porch to go inside and watch the TV. The car comes into the world and people go on vacation. People never used to go on vacation because where would you go? You had to get on your horse. Like you, know, you went on vacation maybe to the next town once in your life, Right? 
Your vacations were done with your family, right? Still an idol, but you see what's happening is that ultimately the idol that we all have to dig up, that kind of those three encompass, is that all of us, including me, we're all narcissists, right? The idol of the American person, the idol of the village is that you think way too much about you and how you feel and how you think things are and how you think it should be, right? Because now what culture tells you is the outside world shouldn't define you, you should define you. And so now that's really complex because it's all based on how you feel about you at some point in time, right? So the invitation of the village is to plow up your narcissism this December. That's what we're inviting. And what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying, if you can flick my slide there, uh, Rod, slide. Somebody over on the computer. It, the computer sleeps and then it, look, idols. Well, idols. idols. The idols are not working. You have to use the mouse. It's just sleeping. So click the arrow. There you go. The invitation from Paul is that we get God's heart. That we become distressed by our idols and by the idols of our community. Right? We get distressed about how narcissistic we are and how narcissistic our families and community is and how narcissistic our world is. Like the, it distresses us, the idols that are present and everywhere in our community. Because our world sells everything to us as an individual and says, you need this because you will be better than them. You need this because this will help you separate yourself from everyone else. I always think it's funny when people show up who like to buy clothes at Target because there are only certain amounts of shirts and so people will sometimes show up with their Target shirt on and be like, oh, you have the same Target shirt I have on. Uh, well, that's part, And that's kind of uncomfortable because the message from Target is that you're an individual and no one will wear this shirt even though that they're stacked up like this in all different sizes. They won't show up in your community. So we need to be distressed. Look at my slide. Because... Our communities are worshiping themselves, right? And it's destructive. And we need to plow it up because that's what happens for us. Now, Paul is moved to action, and I think this is a good way for us to think about how we begin this plowing. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So, The first place you have to go, you can flick my slide, is the church. That's us. So the God-fearing Jews, these are people who, who thought about, looked at all those 50,000 idols and said, there's only one true God. Those aren't the gods. It's the God of Israel, the God who created the world. Paul can come and reason with them. And so he does that. And that is part of how our ground is plowed up, is that we are to reason and say, look, like, We are buying into the culture, guys. We're buying in. And we need to think about how that impacts us and how it impacts one another. We need to reason with one another. Which means that you have to come to church distressed. You must come with God's heart 
not about what can I get, but a distress about you, what, what you see in our culture and in our community that needs to be disrupted in your life and theirs. But the second place, and I think this is maybe harder, is that you and I have to go to the marketplace. And one of the lies that you and I believe is that our religion is private. Right? That our faith is private. That's the lie you've been told. And so when you go to work, when you go into the public sphere, you think your faith is private. Now what's fascinating about Scripture is that God says, Jesus says, your faith is not private. This is a faith that needs to be proclaimed. But he doesn't really tell you how to proclaim it. Yeah, we get some examples, but we invented all of the evangelism methods. Scripture didn't invent the evangelism methods. It just gave us a bunch of examples of people evangelizing, tell, not having their faith private. Right? Actually, the invitation is for you to creatively think about what your faith would look like public and not private. Like how you are going to present it. What it looks like for you to bring a calling of the people look like you're all moving towards narcissism. You're going in this direction. I, we, culture needs to shift. Like however that looks. That may be just a certain way you live out your life. That may be words. But it has to be very specific to you. So the encouragement is that if we're going to disrupt stuff in us, our distress has to move us to reason with people. Now, a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, babbler means seed picker. But the idea here is that carts would roll through the agora, which is the marketplace. And by the way, at the marketplace, everything happened there. Um, And as the carts rolled through, things would fall off the carts. And there'd be these beggars who would then jump up and grab the things off the carts. And so what they're saying is, you've been grabbing a whole bunch of ideas, Paul, and you're just a babbler. You're just trying to put a bunch of things together. So that group of people are just like, we don't care what you have to say. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay. You can take me back to this picture. So, Paul goes into a public space, which is like the internet. Because in the Agora, or the marketplace, everything happens there. You want to know that my daughter graduated from high school on Friday? Um, you would go to Instagram. No, you would go to the market, and, say, and there would be dad going, my daughter graduated. And, be like, and we would have be thrown, and the party's happening Right? You go to the marketplace. Everything happens. You want to know about politics? You go there. You want to get a judgment on your case? You go there. Everything is in this place. That's where Paul is. Flick my slide. And he meets Oprah. And he, one more slide. And he meets Mr. Robbins. Because this is what the modern Stoic and Epicurean are. Oprah. And is it Tim Robbins or is Tom, Tony Robbins? Whatever his name is. Uh, anyways, these two guys are the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, because here's what they are. They're all the, they are self-help gurus who one is wants to help you discipline yourself and the other has a more spiritual kind of thing that they want to look at. But that's who they meet. And honestly, these are, this is our culture. Like, yeah, flick it back and forth a few times. There you go. This is our culture. These are the voices. There are other ones, but these are the powerful voices of our culture. 
Yes, right? These are the powerful voices of our culture. And they keep speaking and telling us who we are and that we can be better people. And we can be, and, and they have the same concerns as you do. They see that the idols and all of that are doing things, but they're just creating other idols, them, to be worshipped and to get the answers, right? But the concern that people have, and the reason that they begin to want to talk to Paul and they take him later, if you read the story, into um, the Areopagus, uh, to kind of discuss all these things is, now you can flip the slide, Rod, is the cross. And I just want to, I want to say a few things as we think about plowing up our heart about the cross and why it changes everything. Because if your religion does not have a cross, it's worthless, okay? And I know if you, you're, you're like, okay, wow, Eric's going for it. Um, because here's the thing. With no cross, you have two versions of a god or gods. One version is you have a moral god who if you screw up, you're out of, you're out of, you know, his graces and you're going to be punished. You, the only way that you can get anything right or ever even feel like you have any kind of love is if you do exactly what that God wants you to do at all times, right? Which is, you know, you've had some parents like that, right? It's terrifying. It doesn't work very well. On the other side, with no cross, you, you're, you're going to have a God. You can have a happy, clappy God who loves everybody. He loves the guy who repeatedly stabs somebody just as so much as he loves you who's good and obedient and honest. Right? Like, he loves everybody, and there's nothing you can do that will make him love you more or less, and in fact, it doesn't really matter what you do, and it doesn't really matter anything, because he loves you. Right? And there's no compelling thing there. No reason to do anything. No, no relationship. But with the cross, things change. Because the cross tells us that we have an extremely holy God. A God who created us. A God who cannot connect himself with sin. Here's here's the interesting thing about God. Is that you and I are broken. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you can look in the mirror, and if you say you're not broken, then you're just a liar, and now you're broken. And, and so, see how that works. And so, you've, you've, you've become broken. And what happens is, it's not just that God says, well, you sin, so you die. No, the very holiness of God, when it comes in touch with sin, judgment and punishment happens. Yes, God chooses judgment and punishment, but the holiness of God and the brokenness of man, when they come together, produce death for the unholy by the very nature of the holiness of God. And yet, what God did was he said, no, no, I'm going to become man and I'm going to die. I'm going to put all of that punishment and all of that holiness and all of that wrath on myself, on my son. So all of a sudden, on the other side, when God tells you he loves you, it's not a happy, clappy God who's loving you. It's a God who said, I want so much to be in relationship with you that I'm willing to die so that we can have relationship. That transforms your understanding of yourself. So when you go back to fallow months, digging up the fallow parts, the parts that have hardened over, that have kind of numbed you out to your narcissistic ways of life, right? that part... When you go back, and the cross, the cross is the thing that digs up. The cross is the thing that says, 
look, you cannot get your value from your parents and from your work and from your country. And you cannot get your value out of your pleasure and out of what you own. You, your internal self-actualization, whatever you want to call it, sorry for the big word, uh, like whatever you want to call it, like that's not going to give you anything. The only thing that's going to give you any kind of self-esteem is a God who esteems you by the very fact that he died for you and says, you will never lose with me. You will never be abandoned. Yeah, the world may fall apart. Things, your, you know, your kids may die. You may, you know, lots of bad things may happen to you in this broken world, but I will never abandon you. And in the midst of your suffering, I will suffer with you and deliver you. So before getting you super depressed about Fallow Month, because this is all serious stuff, I want to tell you what happens when you start plowing things up. I can flip my slide. If you flip slide, it'd be good. I would like to go to Zechariah. Chapter 8. Zechariah is an ancient prophet. But he says some things that tell you exactly what happens when this begins, when this plowing of your fallow ground begins. It says, again, the word of the Lord, this is verse 18, chapter 8. He's an ancient prophet like Hosea. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, and seventh, and tenth months will become joyful. Which, by the way, just pause there. Fasts being joyful. That's, that's an interesting idea right there. Um, not eating, being joyful will become joyful and glad, occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of the cities will go to another and say, let us go once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. When you decide to plow up the ground of your heart and begin to identify the idols of your life and begin to wrestle with what the cross means in your life, when you begin to get... God's heart, and you're distressed by these things, you will find people saying, I want to be with you because God is with you, right? Because what happens when you dig up your narcissism, when you begin to redirect your worship towards Jesus and not towards your family, not towards the things that you have, not towards your own sexual pleasure, not towards the fulfillment of relationship, I could go on and on. When those are not the things that you worship, but the God is who you worship and the cross is where you find yourself, people will want to be around you. People will come and say, let's go seek God together. And that's who we will become. Today we're not going to have any questions. I just want you to chew on that. Um, and I'm very excited about what God is calling us to over December. So, with all that said, let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, and thank you for your grace, and thank you for the fact that we don't need to get it right, um, and that you invite us into a wild life. Uh, You 
invite us into a life that is about you and about seeing your kingdom come. So I ask that you would give us a vision for that and a hope for that in this community. And I ask that in your holy name. Amen.